we're doing this thing. I know it's Palm Sunday, and um, I, but I wanted to carry on with what we're doing. Um, we're looking at I thirst, which is the fifth word from the cross. Jesus, when he's dying for the sins of the world, says seven things. And you go, well, okay, if he says seven things as he's being crucified, those seven things have got to be really important. Even just two words, I thirst, has got to be really important. has got to teach us something. So it's John chapter 19, hopefully. Yep. And I'm just going to read um, from verses 16 onwards if you're following along in the Bible because it just gives us a bit of kind of context and again just reminds us it's good to sit under the word of God isn't it but the best bits of my sermons are always where I just read the Bible in fact the best bit of any message is always the bit where you just sit under the word of God because it it does something it changes your heart so this is the second bit it's verse 16 onwards so they they delivered him that's Jesus over to be crucified so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place, uh, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two of us, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, "Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews." Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar, of full, a, full, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Anyone who ever doubts the authenticity of the gospel accounts just needs to look at the level of detail that's written before us. It's not just Jesus died. Just look at the detail of the stuff, his clothing, what he was given to drink, the exact words that he said. And uh, the very people, as I said before, that were, that were shouting, Hosanna, praise the Lord, here he comes, our saviour, are the ones that are now crucifying him. Just a short week later, less than a week later, they're doing that. And... Um, and the fifth word from the cross is that from John 19, where Jesus says, I thirst. And um, in 2007, it was a, a beautiful year, uh, great times. Um, it was the year I think I met Grace. So I think. Oh, well, I can't remember these things. I've got to remember birthdays and stuff. I can't remember every anniversary, but it was a good year. And before that, I'd been in America over the summer doing something called Camp America, which is... Um, that sounds worse than it is, but it's 
it's where you go and you serve on team and you, you do some stuff out there. And I was doing a bit of lifeguarding at a Christian camp, um, spending my time kind of, I actually saved someone from drowning as well. It's the only time that's ever happened. Um, and um, that's what I was doing over the summer. And before that, in early June, so you imagine New York State, early June, it's a bit hot. Uh, the kids hadn't come yet and we're doing all our training. And I, I think at that point, rediscovered one of my favorite things in life, Mountain Dew. And when I talk about Mountain Dew, I'm talking about American Mountain Dew, not British Mountain Dew, because it's just, it's not the same thing. It's a little bit like Coke and Pepsi. They're not the same. They could taste completely different. But I was, I was out in New York State enjoying a lot of Mountain Dew. Now, um, there's a little picture I think that's going to come up. just shows how much I love it. There we go. There's some Mountain Dew, my name on it. Uh, I love it very much. If anybody wants to bless me, this stuff would be great. But you've got to import it. Okay? So just add that onto your little costumes. That's fine. Um, I have Mountain Dew pajamas. I have a Mountain Dew t-shirt. I have Mountain Dew lip balm. It tastes great. Well, it just tastes so good. Uh, you get a picture. I really enjoy Mountain Dew. And uh, the problem with Mountain Dew is basically, as you can tell from the colours, it's basically just sugar in liquid form. It's not very good for you. It has adverse effects. And it's not healthy at all. Um, I've got two litres of it in my fridge at present, which I'm going to enjoy soon. But it's, it's just flavoured sugar. But you'd love it. And uh, I was drinking loads and loads and loads of this stuff because I thought, oh, I've got to get this in. Because I knew when the kids came... I couldn't have fizzy stuff anymore. It was one of the rules. You're not allowed to drink fizzy drinks anymore. So I was just getting lots and lots and lots of stuff through the different flavors, just enjoying them all. And then, uh, obviously, two weeks later, I wasn't allowed to drink it anymore. So I stopped. And you know what I didn't do? There is actually in these bottles some water content, would you believe it or not? Um, and I didn't replace the water that I'd been drinking in Martin Dew. So I was hiking down a, a, a hill in uh, the middle of nowhere in the US of A with a couple of other people and just collapsed. And the next thing I remember is waking up in an ambulance on the way to ER. And uh, it turns out I was dehydrated because I'd not been drinking stuff. So Martin Dew gave me terrible dehydration, but I still love it. Um, I was on a drip for days and days and uh, the first week of me meant to be serving on camp, I was basically in hospital. Um, getting a nice big insurance bill. I remember my parents, because of the time difference, it happened in the evening. Um, I think they got a call in the middle of the night saying, your son's collapsed and on the way to hospital, but everything's okay, we think. Something like that, which is what you just want to hear is your son's on the other side of the world. Um, but yeah, I had dehydration. Um, and the life lesson from that is still drink Mountain Dew, but also drink water. So if you like fizzy drinks, which aren't good for you, by the way, little health tip there, um, drink water alongside them. And uh, the reason I tell you that story is because what Jesus faced on the cross, from a human point of view, was dehydration. The, the point where actually your body shuts down um, because of a lack of water going into your system. And uh, this is the only word really on the cross of the seven that has that kind of personal nature to it. Jesus' humanity comes across really strong with this word when he says, I thirst. Something that we've probably all experienced at different points where we've been thirsty. Jesus here has been on trial. Like, I've just been hiking in the mountains and stopped drinking Martin Dew. Jesus has been on trial. He's been beaten. We don't know when the last time he'd had a drink was. He's, got, he's been beaten up. He's been whipped. He's been scorned. He's had a crown of thorns rammed onto his head. He's then got to carry his own cross to the top of a hill, and then he's crucified upon it under the midday sun. Like, he's going to be thirsty, isn't he? 
He's going to be needing a drink. His humanity just comes across really strong. And I was reading all sorts of stuff on dehydration. And like when you have serious dehydration, like it's incredibly painful. It's not just like, oh, I need a little beverage now. I need a tea or a coffee. Like it's incredibly painful because your body is made up of, I don't know, is it 60%, 80%? A doctor would be able to tell me of water, like a lot of water, which is used for everything, you know, waste and getting stuff around, moving stuff around your body. And to not have that going in is just agony. And here we have the creator of the universe, the creator of water itself, hanging on a cross, crying out for something to thirst. It's amazing, really, crying out for just something to quench his moment of pain. And you know how earth responds? Earth responds by giving him sour wine. I mean, not even a Mountain Dew. Like, sour wine. Like, that's not a, a pleasurable drink at the best of times. In, in John chapter 2, Jesus is turning water into wine, and we read that it's like the finest stuff. Here, earth responds to the creator of the universe by giving it its worst. And isn't that just what we do, how we respond to the grace of God and how earth responds to all that God is? Is Often we just, we don't give our best back to God. And here, the people, uh, the Romans, because that's what they'd be drinking, sour wine, an unpleasant drink at best. And I mean, how long can we go without water? I don't know how long people here have gone without water for. You probably have already had a drink today. Scientists don't seemingly know how long the human body can go for water without because it depends on your circumstance. So, for example, if you're under the beating sun and you've been beaten up and you're bleeding everywhere, you're not going to be able to go as long without water as if you're just, well, here on a Sunday morning. So they reckon between three and seven days, depending on circumstance, that you can't go without water. Food, incidentally, three weeks. So water and drink is obviously extremely important to our bodies and here's Jesus beaten up not in a good way hanging on a cross and you know what you see the utter humanity of him and that's important as Jesus hangs on the cross he's 100% God and 100% man and sometimes we overemphasize one or we underemphasize the other but he's completely both he's not divided in any way shape or form He's 100% man representing you and I as he hangs upon this stuff. And in that, he experiences the limitations of humanity, which is what? Needing a drink. The same limitations that we face, he faces there. And have you ever been tempted to kind of think or say, God doesn't understand me. God hasn't been through the things that I've been through. He doesn't know how I'm feeling. Well, actually, is your body wrecked with pain? Has your body been wrecked with pain? So was Jesus's. Have you ever been misrepresented by someone? So was Jesus. Have you ever had all your mates abandon you? So was Jesus. Ever been thirsty? So was this guy. 100% human. We hurt, we break. And here Jesus was thirsty. And the eternal son is thirsting on this cross. And he goes through it. For us, a few weeks ago, I think it was the first word from the cross, Carl was talking about how angels at any point could have rescued him. They were at Jesus' beck and call. Well, I'm pretty sure they could have brought him an ice cold water if he'd asked them to. But he didn't. He chose not to because he's choosing this path of the cross. It wasn't, you've heard this said probably, it wasn't the nails that kept Jesus on the cross. But it was his love for you and his love for me. It wasn't the nails and it wasn't those things that prevented him from, from doing that, but it was the love that he has for us. As on the cross, he takes the price 
for our sin. And uh, that's how a lot of commentators, incidentally, they weren't very useful with reading up on I Thirst. Um, they should write some more stuff, I think. Um, a lot of commentators and a lot of kind of people just stop there, actually, when they're talking about what this verse means. And I thought, well, actually, God could have got, Jesus could have got drink from any number of places. It can't just be, if these are really like seven profound words, it can't just be that he's thirsty, right? Well, I, I don't think so. You might disagree with me. But I think that's just kind of the half of it, actually. First, there's a couple of other things. There's a small thing here that Jesus says. And the Bible tells us one of the reasons why he says, I thirst. If you look in your Bible in John 19, you'll see it in brackets. But it says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished to fulfill the scripture, said, I thirst. So not only is he thirsty, but you see the sovereignty and the, the detail. That's why I mentioned at the start about the detail of the cross, the detail that God goes into. Jesus in his lifetime fulfilled prophecy after prophecy, didn't he? In his life of uh, back in the Old Testament, the prophets, and there's all sorts of kind of shadows of what is to come as you read through the Old Testament. You see Jesus kind of, uh, the, the fulfillment of what Jesus will be in so many different stories and ways. And one of those is through prophetic words from people like Isaiah, and you see it in the Psalms, and they're saying, the promised Messiah, the person who's going to come to rescue us, will do this, or will look like this, or this will happen. And, G and according to John, I thirst is one of those that John's recognized that Jesus saying I thirst fulfills some prophecy from Psalm 69, which it does. And it's a psalm which speaks of... Um, troubles and it speaks of woes and it says and I, it says something to the effect or to the effect of actually the, the cry is that he would drink sour wine it's 69 21 that there would be someone who will come who will drink sour wine and here on the cross of all the drinks that Jesus could get that's what he's been given and this is a thousand years before Jesus appears on the cross does David pen this psalm a thousand years before. The Romans aren't doing crucifixions with their sour wine stood there for the... He doesn't know that. It's all God. And you know what that just tells me and blesses my heart? That God cares about the detail. That might not be a big prophetic word. That not, might not be in Isaiah 53 where we're describing exactly how he would die. But even into the small detail, God cares. And even the small details of our lives that we think are insignificant somehow to the creator God and the creator of the universe, he cares about Every little detail, every moment he cares about us and cares about our understanding of who he is and how we relate to him. A thousand years before Jesus that was written, that's why it's important that no matter how insignificant or small our lives feel, that God's in control. And I think every day we have to remind ourselves of that, that God's in control. With the things that we face, with the the up and down nature of this life that he's in control for us. And the main thing I just want to touch on and talk about this morning is the spiritual thirst that I believe is taking place upon the cross. That yes, there's a physical going on, but there's something spiritual going on as well. Because we know that if I was to say I thirst, it can mean for a drink, but a synonym of thirst is like to desire for something, isn't it? To want something. I could thirst for knowledge. I could thirst for understanding. We probably don't use the word thirst as much as we use hung hunger. Oh, I'm hungry for some of that. Or I want this, I want that. That Thirst actually works in that same way. And through the Bible, thirst is used 57 times. And obviously, those 57 times are for a range of things. It's not always, I'm thirsty, give me a drink. 
Often it's, I'm thirsting for the things of God. Psalm 42, I talked about this really briefly last week at Encounter, recalls a thirsting for God. As a deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. It's a, a thirsting for the things of God. So I want you to bear all that in mind. And I, I want you to turn to John chapter 4 if you've got a Bible. Because John, when, when he writes, the, when he writes his, his gospel is tying all these different themes together. He doesn't write things by accident. He writes them to send us back to things that have happened earlier so that it would click in our mind. And John 4 is one of those examples. It's a story of Jesus' mates have gone to get some food, so they're not with him because they were hungry, because he was human. And uh, he's going to, uh, he's, he's rocking up to a well, and he meets a Samaritan woman. And the, uh, the background is that the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get on very much. They didn't like each other, a little bit like Liverpool and Man United fans. They just don't like each other, and that's okay. Um, they, they didn't like each other at all. The Samaritans, by the Jewish people, were viewed as like the half-breed nation that nobody really wanted to hang out with, nobody really wanted to spend any time with. So the fact that Jesus is talking to this woman in the first place, the disciples aren't going to be particularly happy about it. But that just gives you a bit of a context. I'm just going to read from verses 7 through to 15. And almost, I think, part of the story does the talking for me, if you like. This is what it says. A woman from Samaria came to draw water from a well. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew... Ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus already turned the conversation completely around. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water that you're speaking about? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who was one of the fathers of kind of Israel? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, I think that it's going to come up on the screen, hopefully. Um, there you go. Brilliant. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks from this water, speaking of the water in the well, that the woman's there kind of before them, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman Jesus meets a bit of background for this Samaritan woman is her life's a bit chaotic at best. She's had multiple marriages, all failed, so multiple divorces. And she's currently, we're told, living with a man who isn't her husband. She's not doing well. And Jesus relates her experience of longing for satisfaction in human relationship to drinking water out of the well. He says, whoever drinks from this water will be thirsty again. Basically, her lifestyle choices, the things that she's doing, the things that she's feeding into her life are not going to satisfy. That's what Jesus means. He's effectively saying, well, you're just going to move on to the next bloat, love. This one ain't going to be the thing that fills that hole. It's just going to be another human relationship for you. It's not working. There's a longing deep down and you're not finding fulfillment in all of these relationships. No matter how good they are, it's not working. 
No man was ever going to meet that longing that she had in her heart. No human relationship was ever going to satisfy that. And that's because, actually, we're created to know God. We're created to relate to God. And so if we, if we get rid of God and we just choose to relate to one another and not God, there's a longing in our heart still. It's not being fulfilled because we're created to engage and meet with God. And Jesus says instead, instead of this thing that you're going to get thirsty again, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. He starts talking about something else, a living water. And what's that living water? It's himself. He says, whoever follows me, whoever knows me, whoever trusts in me, whoever has their faith and puts it into me will never go thirsty again. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me to drink. The psalm is Psalm 42. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so, my, so, my, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. We all have this human desire. We all have this longing, this longing for something more, for purpose, for meaning, for fulfillment. And we all look for it in the wrong places. And the psalmist here says, actually, you'll find that satisfaction in God. And Jesus here says, you can go and you can do all this stuff and you can thirst in all these places, but you won't be satisfied. You'll be thirsty again. You'll be coming back again and it's going to wreck your life again. But instead, you can come to me. I can give you this water that wells up to eternal life, he says, that your destiny changes. And yet, on the cross, Jesus cries, what? He doesn't cry, I am the one of living water, come and have a drink. He cries, I thirst. Which is quite interesting, really, because you'd think he'd be saying, I'm living water, come and take a drink from me. But he doesn't, he says, I thirst. And it's not in a positive way, I don't believe. You know, like the psalmist is like, my soul longs for God and I'm so thirsty for the things of God and it's a really good thing. With Jesus on the cross, you just get, oh, I think you get, oh, I thirst. I'm thirsty. I'm broken. I'm being crucified for the sins of the world. Because Jesus thirsted, our thirst can be met in him. That's what happens. Because he thirsts, our thirst can be satisfied. Because he thirsts, we can relate to God the Father. Because he takes the punishment, because Jesus is forsaken, we don't have to be. That's what the whole of last week's was about. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's still talking to his Father, but he's forsaken. He's feeling that. It's a human, 100% human, 100% God. He's, he's feeling that on the cross, and he's feeling this thirst and because he thirsts, we don't have to. Actually, we, I want us to be thirsty for the things of God. But what I mean is it can be satisfied. We don't have to keep going back to the well that will mean we'll be thirsty again. God's given us every opportunity in his son Jesus for us to actually have our thirst quenched. For all that we need to be fulfilled in him. It's interesting as well, when you start looking at thirst and the things that are connected to it, there's a story um, in Luke chapter 16 of a rich man and a guy called Lazarus, and it's kind of a metaphorical picture of what goes on, and 
this guy had been outside his door, outside the rich man's door begging, and Lazarus had shown him no mercy whatsoever. And uh, the, the beggar had gone to heaven, and uh, Lazarus had gone to hell. And it's really, not Lazarus, the rich man. <laughs> the rich man had, had gone to hell. And it's very interesting, this kind of metaphorical picture that is painted in Luke chapter 16. Because it's really interesting, one of the phrases that's used by the rich man, is that he's crying out. And what's he crying out for in the place of unquenchable thirst? He's crying out for just a drop, just a drop of cold water upon his tongue because he's thirsty. And what, hell is something that we have to talk about because it's something that's in the Bible. And you know what it is? It's complete separation from God. It's a place of eternal thirst that will be eternally thirsty, but it can't be met because it's too late. And you have all these pictures building in the Bible story narrative. And then Jesus cries, I thirst from the cross. So that actually if we turn around whilst there's breath in our lungs and put our trust in him and actually thirst for him, we can know God. That's what his cry means. It's another cry of actually we can know God the Father. There's a great quote by a guy. I can't remember it. I couldn't pronounce his name, so I've not written it down. So I'm not plagiarizing, but I just couldn't pronounce it. Jesus was thirsty that he might redeem us from an eternal thirst. That's what he does. We've got this eternal thirst, but Jesus was thirsty that we might be redeemed. We might have a shot, actually. We've been judged and we've come up short, yet actually Jesus hangs on the cross in our place so that we don't need to experience the place of unquenchable thirst. That's good news, right? That we don't have to, if we put our trust in Jesus, experience a place of unquenchable thirst. Our thirst can be met and be satisfied in Jesus. And we're given this new life. And basically, we're given two options. We either come to Jesus to rescue us eternally, and he thirsts on our behalf, or we're the ones that carry on being thirsty. That's the choice. There's only two options. It's Jesus or us. There's no third option, no other way. That's it. And we either continue to thirst and not find satisfaction by looking in the wrong places, or we find it in Jesus. And as I was thinking about this, because I think this is the kind of message that we kind of, it, it should be something that we respond to. Um, that actually, many of us probably don't know whether we're thirsty for the things of God or not. Um, are we thirsty for God? We might agree with, I think we probably all agree, hopefully, with the kind of theology and the, the um, we probably agree with the sentiment behind what's said there. But agreeing with a sentiment is one thing. Doing something about it is completely another. A lot of the time in church, don't we, we kind of nod along and say, oh, that's so great. But it doesn't shape and affect our hearts, which is what it's meant to do. It's not meant to stay here. It's meant to come to our hearts and change the way that we live and our attitudes and the way things work out. And are we thirsty for God? You know, like in Psalm 42, where it's like, oh, I long for his presence. I long to know more. Are we like that? Or are actually, we're a bit switched off. We're a bit dry. We're a bit comfy. We're unable to recognize our spiritual dryness. I think there's a danger in that as well, actually, that we, we're so dry spiritually that we don't recognize that we are. We think we're thirsty, but actually we're not. And I think the way of identifying that in our own life is to think about our priorities. Yeah, prioritize? Priorities. Think about what are we prioritizing in our life? What are we valuing in our life? 
What are we pursuing? What are we giving our all to? Is it the kingdom of God or is it something else? Does my life revolve around something else or does it revolve around God? Is God just something I tack on at weekends or do I live for him on Mondays as well? You know, when it's hard on a Monday morning or am I just a Sunday Christian? You know, I saw something alarming today that popped up on some kind of news thing that says 25% of Christians don't believe in the resurrection. Well, 25% aren't Christians, are they? Like, it's, it's, this truth has to have an impact upon our hearts and our lives. It has to change us. We have to be a people that are thirsty and hungry, those synonyms there of desire, for the things of God and for God himself. And I want to read you a quote from a guy called A.W. Tozer, who's an American preacher pastor in the late 1800s and then over into the early 20th century. I think he died in like the 60s. And he says this, he says, I want to deliberately encourage this mighty longing after God. The lack of it has brought us to our present lower state. It's quite an interesting phrase there. That the lack of desire has brought us to where we are. The stiff and wooden quality about our religious lives is as a result of our lack of holy desire. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present or there'll be no manifestation of Christ to his people. He waits to be wanted. Too bad that with many of us, he waits so long, so very long in vain. Do we want to see God? It's not a rhetorical question. Do we want to experience the power and the presence of God in our lives? We do, don't we? Don't we want to see him do amazing things in our town and see people come to faith in hundreds of thousands? Right? Yeah? I do. Don't you want to see it with people that you're bumping into and work that actually you're so thirsting for the things of God that actually it's overflowing into conversation? A little bit like what Joe was, Joe was describing. I don't, the message is great and what they're doing is great, but actually we can have that too. We can have that enthusiasm and that desire to serve the Lord and see him do amazing things. Because it's when we step out in faith, he meets us there. So often we don't get out of the boat, as the story is, don't we? And we stay comfy and quite happy in our Christian walk, just floating along. When we step out, he meets us there. And I tell you, we will see God do things. But we've got to be thirsty. We've got to desire him. And Jesus thirsts, actually, the, may, the way is made that we can. That... Actually, if we say, God, I need you, God, I want you more, he's not going to let you down. He's not going to leave you hanging. He's going to meet you there. And when you step out in faith, he's going to meet you there. And I love that we've, I've quoted stuff from the Psalms. We've quoted John a little bit. And then the last chapter of the Bible, the amen of the Bible, if you like, the concluding statements of what it's all been about, what it all means. Revelation chapter 22. This is one of the things it says. The spirit and the bride talking about the church say, come and let the one who hears come. Let the one who is thirsty come. The one who desires take the water of life without price. Basically, it's saying if you're thirsty, you come and actually you will be fulfilled and you'll be fulfilled eternally. And that starts right now. Some people say your best life starts now. That's not true. Your best life's coming. But I tell you, you have a better life right now than the one you have before you've put, given your trust to Christ. And the more we desire God, the more we'll know his presence, the more we'll walk with him, the more we'll experience his grace day in, day out. And I want to just ask the band to come out. 
And I want us during this period of worship, I want us to be honest with ourselves and ask the question, what am I prioritizing? What am I valuing? What am I pursuing? Is it God or is it something else? And this morning is the opportunity to put that right. And you know what? I'm going to be doing it because I know that I drift. I know that my pursuits and the things that I desire and God isn't always a priority in my life and he needs to be. So I'll be the first one saying I need to get this right. I need to be more thirsty for the things of God. I need to want to want him more. And the fact that I can in Jesus is just incredible. That Jesus thirsts, that actually our thirst can be met in him is remarkable. So I just invite you to stand because we're going to sing. And I'm going to pray. And I'm going to use kind of the, the words of Revelation 22. And I want to invite you to respond, however you want to do that, whether it's to just turn to the person next to you and say, can you pray for me to be filled with God, the Holy Spirit, that I would thirst for you more, or you'd like prayer from a kind of prayer ministry team, then there'll be some people down the side. But if you want to thirst for God, if you say, actually, I'm not satisfied with where I'm at right now, I want more of God, then actually, that's something that we respond to. It's not something that we just nod along with and go, okay, great. It's something we actually have to respond to and say, yes, I'm in, I'm going to step into that because I want to experience the grace of God.